let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Fortunately, we have a backup sound system here. John chapter 3. We've been studying the life and ministry of John the Baptist. And um, we know from our studies that Jesus called him the greatest man ever born of a woman. And John got that designation, as we saw last week, without ever doing a miracle, without ever teaching anything that was um, deeply theologically profound. Uh, he got it without really ever drawing attention to himself. But his calling on the same one that we have on ours. His calling was to tell people about Jesus, to prepare the way, to let people know that a Savior was coming, that mankind needs a Savior, to call people to repentance, and to show them that every single person needs salvation from their sin. Now, his job, his responsibility is the exact same responsibility that we have. His job just came before Jesus came. Our job came after Jesus went back to heaven. So we've been, over the last few weeks, paralleling our lives with his and paralleling our ministry responsibility uh, with his. Even though his life was far more extreme, far more isolated, far more difficult uh, than ours ever will be. Uh, and we're looking at some of the characteristics about his life uh, that really must be true about ours. Now, two weeks ago, uh, if you weren't here or, or didn't hear the podcast, because we had technical issues then, we're going to follow those this week. First thing that we saw, the first characteristics of John Light is that he was committed to being unencumbered and undistracted. He was committed to being set apart, even though it meant being isolated in the wilderness and having a difficult time out there, kind of being out of the mainstream, away from his family and his friends, but that he chose to wait for the Lord's plan to be revealed, and then once the Lord's plan was revealed, he absolutely followed it. So he was committed to being unencumbered and undistracted. And last week, we talked about conviction, and we saw that John chose conviction over comfort and over carefulness. So he was willing to take a stand for the Lord. He was willing to call out sin. He was willing to call the people to repent. He preached the gospel without any shame or without any hesitation. Uh, and he really uh, was, was just standing for the Lord like nobody had in, in a great many years, probably since the time of Daniel. So now we've got him being unencumbered and undistracted. We've got him living by his conviction. And then this morning, we're going to see an important standard um, that, that he gave us to follow. And this standard, as I mentioned in the prayer for the fathers, completely contradicts the attitude of our culture. And yet this standard that we're going to talk about this morning is so absolutely necessary if we're going to live for the Lord and we're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we're going to fulfill our calling as believers. This is something that we have to embrace and live out uh, every single day. Now, as I've kind of studied through John's life over the last month, I've, I've been I'm kind of impressed by the thought that it's, it's easy to get a little distracted, so to speak, by, by his unusual living conditions and by the fact that he had this life-changing uh, calling to, to announce Jesus Christ and to, and to be the forerunner and be the voice crying in the wilderness. Um, and, and that was really a responsibility that, that nobody ever had. What an honor that was to be called to that. And, and what a responsibility to, to be given that job. But, but over the last week, I've been very intrigued 
uh, and I've never seen this in studying him before, I've been very intrigued by the, by the flip side of that calling. It, what a challenge it would have been to, to not be jealous and to not be uh, territorial and to not be resentful of the fact that his job was very short, his job had one purpose, and that when Jesus showed up, his job was done, and basically his ministry and his life was over. How would you not feel kind of nervous and frustrated and, and, and jealous about that? Now you say, well, that wasn't a fact. Come on, he was, he was John the Baptist, and he was filled with the spirit in the womb, and, and he knew the magnitude of, of what he was going to do, and so he accepted it. Well, that may be true. But we also have to remember when we study scripture that the men and women that we study were just like us. Uh, James says that Elijah, I love this verse, Elijah was a man just like us. Now I think, well, Elijah called down fire from heaven and raised a, a child from the dead and, and had food that lasted months and months even though there were no resources and, and he, he prayed and, and the drought of three and a half years ended. How could Elijah be a man just like Paul Rhodes? There's no way, but that's what the scripture says. So when we study Moses, Abraham, David, Daniel, Elijah, Esther, Ruth, Mary, uh, Phoebe, uh, all the names in scripture that we look at, that we hold up as a standard, we have to understand that they're just like you and me. So anything that we feel, any emotion and stress that we felt, they felt. So John the Baptist felt the same emotions, struggled with the same feelings and temptations. He was just as prone to pride and just as prone to sin as you and I are. He was no different. He was not some supernatural person that didn't struggle with any of these things. He was not some, some great, some saint that, that was far above the problems that we all face, the emotions that we face, and, and he didn't deal with life the way. No, there's nowhere in Scripture that says that. John wrestled with the same pull of self-centeredness that you and I do. But that's where the example that he said this morning is so powerful and, and where it really speaks to us. And this is what I want to get to this morning about the decisions that we have to make to be selfless and the decisions that we have to make to bring glory to God instead of to ourselves. So we're going to look at the third characteristic this morning. Some of you have been taking notes throughout this. And let me give you the third characteristic we're going to develop over the next couple of minutes here. First, we saw that John was committed to being uncovered and undistracted. Second, he chose conviction over comfort and carefulness. And third, this morning, John deflected and deferred to Christ rather than demanding anything for himself. John deflected and deferred to Christ rather than demanding anything for himself. Now, as we read through this text in John chapter 3, I want to really encourage you to, to get inside the text. Don't just listen to me talk and, and read. I want you to really read and I want you to feel it. I want you to get the psychology of it. I want you to get the sociology of it. I want you to, to put yourself in John's place and we'll, we'll study and develop it. But put yourself in John's place and feel the pressure that he felt. 
and feel the emotions that he potentially felt, especially as the enemy pushed him and tempted him and tried to, to distract him. We don't have any tangible record of the enemy doing that like we do with Jesus when Jesus goes to the wilderness he's tempted. But, but we can easily understand it from the text. We're not even having to read between the lines. We're just getting inside his mind. So start in chapter 3 of the book of John and verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he, speaking of Jesus, he was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you testify. Behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said to him, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who is the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, speaking of Christ. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Now, let's get into the, to the, to the heart and mind of John. Because up to this point, he has had a very uh, invaluable, very successful ministry. He has been a loud voice of spiritual conviction and spiritual clarity. He has called the nation to repent, and thousands have responded. He's been baptizing people uh, for the preparation of their heart to receive Christ. And, and he's been, uh, in many ways, a, a prophet and a preacher and a pastor all at the same time after there's been 400 years of silence. God hasn't spoken for 400 years. Then Jesus is born, and then the wise men, and then Jesus is in the temple at the age of 12. Then we have 21 years of silence. Then we have John the Baptist. And all of a sudden, out of the wilderness, John starts talking about the Lord, calling people to repent, saying that the Savior is coming, the Messiah they prayed for for years, is, is finally going to be there. So everything up until verse 22 has been fantastic. But then you get to verse 22. And once you get to John 3, 22, everything starts to change. Because now Jesus and his disciples start to come into Judea. That's the region outside of Jerusalem where John had been in the wilderness with his disciples, baptizing people in the Jordan, drawing huge crowds. That the, the Judean wilderness had been his territory. Jesus was in Galilee. 
So now Jesus and his disciples start to come down into the area where John was. And people had been intrigued by John, by his unique look and, and by his message and his appeal to the people. And, and maybe they were even kind of thrilled that he took on the Pharisees who were so corrupt. So, so he had been the one drawing the headlines in the news. I, I don't think you could find one person that didn't have a definitive opinion about John the Baptist at this point. So he was well known. People knew him. Many people respected him. Some people rejected him. But everybody knew John the Baptist. Now sometimes when we get attention like that, it can become a very alluring drug. Every one of us has an innate need to be loved and appreciated and to be noticed. So when people do notice us and when people do give us a claim, we like it, don't we? And we start to feed off of it. And, and eventually that becomes something that we crave more and more. But when we don't get that attention or when we don't get the affirmation, especially when we really believe that we deserve it, or, or even worse, when somebody takes it away from us, it becomes a great source of contention. And we can be very preoccupied in our hearts with getting it back. See, popularity and insecurity are opposite ends of the spectrum, but at the same time, they're both driven by the same thing. Popularity and insecurity are both driven by pride. They're driven in different ways, but they're both driven by pride. And there is, there is no question, I don't think it's a matter of debate, that John the Baptist was not exempt from the temptation of pride. In fact, he probably felt it more than you and I do, and certainly the enemy would have pushed that because John's responsibility was so huge to prepare the way of the Lord that don't you know that the enemy would have been hitting him day after day after day after day with temptation. Now, John's been the voice. He's been the one out of the wilderness. He's been the one drawing people and baptizing. And now all of a sudden, when you look back at the text, verse 22, all of a sudden now Jesus shows up. And Jesus starts to baptize people. And Jesus starts to draw people to himself. And in drawing people to himself, what's going to happen? They're drawing away from John. So in verses 22 and 23, we see Jesus is baptizing now. So, so John now isn't unique. He's not the only one baptizing. Nobody had ever baptized before. It wasn't in the Old Testament. John had called people. Let's be clear what, what John's baptism was. This was an act of repentance and an act of, of confessing their need to God and, and ceremonially cleansing themselves to prepare to meet the one who would save them. So John's baptism is not like believer's baptism. When we're baptized as believers, we are, we are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of God, of Christ, which is why we don't sprinkle people. We, we, we immerse under the water because you're identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And you're saying, as a believer, I want to declare that I love Christ, that I've been saved by him, and that I'm one of his children. So believer's baptism is post-salvation in order to make a statement, I'm one of Christ. John's baptism, because Christ hadn't come yet, was an act of preparation and, and statement that I want to be cleansed in my heart and I want to turn from my sin so I can receive Christ. Different, difference in the, in the two things. So John's been baptizing and then Jesus shows up and he starts to baptize 
uh, really for the same purpose. Although at this point now, why would I go to John the Baptist when I can be baptized by Jesus? I mean, that's no contest, right? John the Baptist is great and what a guy, but that's Messiah. I want to be baptized by Messiah. So now we get to verse 26. And even John's disciples start to kind of sense the shift of what's going on because they bring up the fact, they say, hey, John, by the way, um, Jesus is now baptizing, and notice the phrase, and all are coming to him. In other words, what's the implication here? Well, Jesus is the one you came to announce, and now Jesus is here, and he's doing what you do, and we don't really want to mention this, but um, he's drawing bigger crowds. He's getting more people. And, and you notice, John, that, that our crowds are, are starting to dwindle a little bit. The more prominent Jesus became, the more John's crowds thinned out. And it would have been difficult, come on now, think, think humanly here, it would have been difficult not to feel that personally. And I think when John's disciples bring that up in verse 26, it's, it's not out of jealousy or resentment. I think they honestly just felt bad for him, like, sorry, John, I mean, you did your job well, you announced Jesus, and you baptized people in preparation, and now Jesus is here, and, and you know, people aren't showing up. Now, taking that on face value, I want you to, um, I, I want all of us to, to kind of sense that viscerally. Because don't you know how the devil works? That as soon as John started to feel that little bit of angst and maybe a little touch of jealousy, don't you know the devil sweeped in and just said, see? See, this is what God does to Boy, man, it feels lousy, doesn't it? You used to have thousands of people. Now look at it. Boy, you're scraping up dozens today. Isn't that great? I, I, I thought people wanted to come be baptized by you, but... Boy, Jesus is stealing all the thunder. How's that feel to you, John? You know the devil works that way. So how did he feel? How, how, how would you and I have responded? What happens when somebody steals our thunder? What happens when, when the attention is pulled away from us? Or maybe at, at your work, you're not getting the credit that you know you deserve. Or maybe in your family, you're, you're a solid person and you're, you're humble and you're, you're sacrificial and everybody kind of takes advantage of you. Or maybe you're around friends who are so uh, arrogant and cocky and everybody loves them and laughs at their jokes and pays attention to them, but, but nobody kind of pays attention to you. How do we feel when we feel those emotions? Because we feel those emotions, right? I'm not the only one that feels those emotions. Correct. Say yes if you agree. I just want to know I'm not up here by myself. So we feel that. What, how, how do we respond to that? Uh, don't you know, resist the urge at this point to give a, a spiritualized answer. Really get down into the raw emotion. And it may, you, it may hurt you this morning. You may say, boy, I didn't come here to, to, to feel that. But now you're really touching on a nerve. Yeah, touch on the nerve for a minute. How does it feel to be replaced? How does it feel to be marginalized socially? What did John feel as the crowds started to go down and as he laid down on whatever pillow he had out in the wilderness at night and, and he heard his disciples talking like, you know, it's kind of, the run's kind of over, I think, you know, people aren't showing up, I don't think they're coming back and Jesus is here. John heard that. How did he feel? 
In those moments where we have emotional conflict and where the enemy's temptation starts to become very subtly vicious and when insecurity starts to make its claims and past hurts start to start to kind of raise their ugly head and we hear people talking and, and we know that things aren't the way they were and, and doubt about God's goodness starts to creep in. How do we respond in those moments? Because in those moments, it's where our attitude and our character is revealed and where the level of our spiritual maturity is revealed. Does, does it reveal a heart that is still selfish and spiritually mature? One that's unwilling to continue to die to self and to sacrifice? Or does it see, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, in Christ, who emptied himself and, and took on the form of a bondservant. See, that same passage in Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfishness or vain conceit, but be humble in mind, not looking after your own interests, but the interests of others. You say, well, Paul, you don't understand. You understand how people have been to me. You don't understand how, how they've been mean to me and how they've left me out and how they've taken credit for what I did at work and, and, and whatever the case may be. Listen, you don't think John felt that? You don't think it is humanity John felt, wow, I, I did my job and nobody's paying attention to me anymore. The greatest challenge for John was not living in the wilderness by himself and it wasn't eating bugs and honey, even though know, that still sounds nasty. And it wasn't challenging the Pharisees and it wasn't baptizing hundreds of people every single day. The, the greatest battle that John had, and this is the battle that every single one of us faces, was that internal battle between his pride and his human need for affirmation and the reality that he needed to deflect and defer to Christ. And I'm telling you, that is a battle that we are all facing every single day. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you are spiritually, you may hate Jesus Christ this morning. You may be angry that you have to be in church listening to the Bible. Or you may love Christ. You may be brand new in your faith. Or you may have been saved for 50 years. Every single one of us is going to fight this one thing. Do you love yourself more or do you love God more? I don't care if you're unsaved or saved. I don't care if you're immature in your faith or mature in your faith. Every one of us is going to fight that battle. And the prevailing attitude of the culture is hate God. I was at a, a big event with my boys yesterday, and we were in a convention center with, with hundreds of people, and I was watching uh, dozens of people who were waiting 20, 30 minutes in line to, to receive a prize that was worth about $2. And, and I looked across from the, from the side of the room at, at these hundreds of people just spending time and money with, without any hesitation. And I, and I thought to myself, it's a strange thought crossed my mind, and I thought to myself, and I hope I can explain this, all these people paid to do this today, but would they have showed up to receive a free gift of having their soul secure eternally? Would they have driven and parked and paid money and made the effort to come and have somebody say, I will give you, uh, God will give you a free gift of salvation. All you have to do is turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. And for all eternity, you can be forgiven and secured forever. Would they have gladly accepted that? 
Would they have understood and, and received the fact that God does love them and he's more than willing to forgive our sin and to adopt us as his own children? Or would they have said, oh, come on, that's nonsense. That's, that's not real. That's not, not even necessary. I'm more important than that. I don't need that. My son Matt and I drove to, to Madison on Wednesday to hear Franklin Graham from the Capitol. And as we were praying on the lawn during the the time that they had, I, I had a protest, there was a protest, a lot of protesters in Madison on Wednesday, and a protester walked by and he kind of shouted as we're all praying and Franklin's talking about God loving us. He said, no, you have to love yourself before you love God. And it didn't hit me until late last night what he had said. But I thought that's the very essence of the lie that the enemy has been telling since Genesis 3. It's the philosophy of man at its core. Love yourself and don't love God. But let me tell you this morning, that's a false economy. That's a false economy. Loving ourselves is an eternally bankrupt position that cannot save us. It is only when we recognize our complete inadequacy that we can begin to understand our complete need for a savior. And for John to be able to call people to repentance, for John to be able to call people to cleansing, he first had to believe that himself. And he had to live it out in the most practical way possible by rejecting any selfish demands that his mind and his heart made on himself. And you know what? That's the same battle that you and I are going to have to face every single day. And it's the choice that we're going to have to so let's draw this to a close. Look, look at John's mindset in the text and look at how his conviction drove his actions. Start at verse 27 where we have the first indication of his humility. He says to his disciples when they ask him this question and it's kind of awkward and, and they're kind of nervous. He says, nothing that we have, nothing that we do is ours unless it's given from heaven. Now think about the implication of that today with all that we have, all our possessions, our family, our health, our loved ones, our jobs, all that we have, everything that we have today is from the Lord. The money that's in your wallet, the ability to go out to lunch and celebrate Father's Day, the air conditioning that's in this room, the cars we drove in, the houses we're going to, you say, well, the houses are out. doesn't matter. It's from the Lord. Everything that we have, God has given us. So John says, look, I'm not going to sit here and make a claim like, like how dare Jesus come along and, and take my thunder. Look, this is Jesus. Everything God gave me, everything I'm doing is because God gave it to me. And then you get to verse 28. He says, now here's the correct mindset we're supposed to have. Remember what I told you from the outset. I'm not the Christ. I only came to announce the Christ and prepare the way for Christ. That's why John wasn't filled with any jealousy and resentment. That's why he never believed the enemy's lie that we should be gods. Remember what, what the devil says to Adam and Eve? Oh, you don't need God. You can be gods. Well, why would you why would you listen to Jehovah? Come on. Seriously. You, you just eat that fruit, you'll be gods. You'll be fine. John never bought into that. And I would have to believe that would have been the greatest temptation when the crowds were streaming to him and he was baptizing and people were repenting and the Pharisees were backing down. Don't you know that the devil was stoking his ego? Look at you. Boy, are you effective. 
boy, I'm telling you, the people love you. This is great. You look like a complete moron, but, but it's fantastic. People are getting back. This is great. Oh, wait a second. Jesus is coming. He's going to take the crowds. John, what do you think about that? That's how the devil works. But John knew his calling. He says, look, it's just a blessing to, to stand for God and to announce him. Oh, I don't know about you, but we need to pray for more of that effectiveness and more of that awareness in our life. We need to pray that God will never allow us to believe the enemy's lies and to reject any thought that we have that we are big stuff and that we are worthy and that we should be in control and get credit. Men, I can't think of anything that we should desire more from the Lord to model for our wives and for our kids and for our church than that kind of humility. Then we need to pray that God will humble us. You say, I'm not going to pray that because God will answer that. Exactly. You pray for humility, God will humble you. You say, well, I don't know, that's kind of risky. Yeah, but what's the other option? If you don't pray for humility, what are you full of? Pride. Pride destroys families. Pride destroys relationship with kids. Pride destroys your witness. Pride destroys your walk. It's not a position of weakness to pray for humility. It's a position of strength. It's a powerful testimony of your love for the Lord and your yieldness to the Holy Spirit. John says, that's what I came to do. Look back to the text one more time. In verse 29, he says, I'm like the best man in the wedding. My job is not to take away attention from the groom. My job is to stand by him and hear him and meet his requests and rejoice at everything that brings the groom joy. You've probably been to a wedding. Have you ever been to a wedding? Don't raise your hand because that'll, that'll say something. But have you ever been to a wedding where the best man makes a spectacle of himself? Where he, he's inappropriate or obnoxious or drunk or whatever. I, I once attended probably the most beautiful rehearsal dinner I've ever been to. I've probably done 350 weddings. Uh, this is the most beautiful rehearsal dinner I've ever been to. It was, a, it was an amazing open-air venue overlooking the Manhattan skyline. The, the meal was exquisite. I mean, it was just like, oh man, this is so good. You know, where they put tiny little portions on your plate, but every bite's tremendous. Not like Hardee's, you know. Here, here's, a, here's a hamburger and fries. It wasn't like that at all. And I'm sitting in this beautiful open-air venue, and I'm looking over New York, and it's all lit up, and it's just, it's just fabulous. And the best man proceeds to get up and tell a highly, and I mean highly, inappropriate story about a past relationship that the group had with another woman. Now, the word awkward doesn't even begin to describe it. And you can feel the air suck out of the room. Like, no, please stop. Please somebody grab the microphone. Please don't keep bowling. And he was like, oh, we did this, and they lived together. And I was just like, are you kidding me? Now, needless to say, that ruled the rehearsal dinner. And needless to say, that put a weird atmosphere on the wedding. That was not the best man's job. The best man's job was to bring attention to the groom in a good way, not to make a name for himself. 
Look at what John says. He says, that's my job. My job is to support the groom, speaking of Jesus, and to get out of the way. John could have leaned in metaphorically to the pictures. Look, look at me. I'm the one who announced it. Everybody knows. You remember me? I was down in the Jordan River baptizing all you guys, and now you're following Jesus. But, but here I am. Don't forget old John. John says to his disciples, look, we're not going to be jealous. We're not going to be bitter. We're not going to be resentful. This is why I came. This is the job God gave me to show people Jesus Christ and then to get out of the way so nobody sees me and everybody sees Christ. And Christian, this morning, that's our job. Our job is to show people Christ. And when you look at the last line of verse 29 and all of verse 30, it perfectly captures the heart of John the Baptist. He says, my joy is made full by being the one who is called to stand for Christ. This is the honor of my life and my ministry to deflect attention away from me so Christ would be praised and trusted. And then he says that verse that we've quoted so many times in our life. But I don't think we've ever talked about the context well enough. He says, he must increase. Tell me the last four words. And I must decrease. He must increase. Look, look, guys. Look, disciples. I know you're, you're feeling bad for me. And the crowds have thinned out. But listen, this is the whole point of being a follower of Christ. That he gets the glory and nobody sees me. Because I don't deserve that. And that highlights two important spiritual principles that I want to just give you in closing that, that come out of his attitude and actions. And as we apply them to our lives, listen now, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us have this mindset. And we need to ask, especially uh, aggressively ask him to remove anything that hinders this mindset from taking hold. If, if we're not even willing to ask the Lord, Lord, remove my pride. Lord, humble me. Lord, Lord, give me the mindset that he must increase and I must decrease. If, if we don't even want to ask the Lord for that, how are we going to live in hell? This should be a daily request. This should be an hourly request. When, when pride creeps in and temptation creeps in and we start to feel full of ourselves and we want control and we're frustrated with the Lord with his plans or his timing or whatever the case may be, we need to say, Lord, change my attitude. You must increase and I must decrease. Lord, it's about your glory, not about my glory. I deserve So let me give you quickly two spiritual principles that came out of John's actions that are for us this morning. First of all, we must intentionally look for every opportunity to deflect and defer Christ. We must intentionally look for every opportunity to deflect and defer to Christ rather than demanding anything for ourselves. In other words, every day as a believer, if you're a believer this morning, Every day, we need to say to the Holy Spirit, Lord, strip me of my desires, strip me of my selfishness, so I can yield fully to you. The command to deny ourselves daily 
is just that. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not an idealistic thought that, boy, I hope someday I'll be able to do that. It is an intentional prayer and an intentional decision. So the question is, are we willing to surrender ourselves to the Lord in that way and trust that he'll provide for us? Salvation is not just praying a prayer and being covered. Like, well, yeah, I prayed a prayer in 1981, and I'm good now. I'm covered, and I go to church, and, 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 and yeah, it's good. And, and, and God's, God's got my back. You know what salvation is? It's a complete life transformation. So your priorities and your desires and your lifestyle look nothing like they did before. That's what Christ died to secure. And if that's not present in your life, then you need to evaluate where was the Lord. Salvation is not just, well, I'm good. I've got my insurance. I'm good to go. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. And I'm good. But I'm going to keep living like I want. I'm going to keep doing whatever I want because, because I'm covered. It's a, very, it's a very Catholic way of thinking. I know we live in a, an area where Catholicism, many grow up Catholicism. Listen, it's not just about I'm, I'm good. God transforms us. He strips away the old and gives us the new. And everything in your life and my life should be living evidence that we are no longer like we were before. And we need to take a very hard look at ourselves and say, is that how my life looks? Because if it doesn't, something's missing. And it's not God's fault. It's mine. So we must intentionally look for every opportunity to defer away from ourselves so that Christ will be preeminent. Second thought, and we're done. Jesus must always be exalted. And we must always be humbled. Jesus must always be exalted and we must always be humbled. In verse 30, look at it one more time, we're going to pray. In verse 30, John makes it very clear how the scales of our life should always be tipped. You know the old scales that you would see when they would weigh gold? They have the two little, two little saucers and you put thing on one side and the other side goes up. That's always what I've thought of in terms of verse 30. That, that when you put the scale of Jesus, when you put him on there, that, that I go down, all the weight of who I am goes down and Jesus is elevated. He must increase, I must decrease. Now, that's a huge statement from somebody who had such a prominent role. But John understood that having that mindset, listen now, having that mindset greatly hinders our ability to be selfish and self-centered. Imagine if everything that you did this week, before you did it, you said to yourself, how can Christ be exalted right now? How can Christ be exalted in the way I talk to my wife when she's frustrating me? How can, my, how, how can Christ be exalted when my husband's not doing what I'd like him to do and he's being lazy and I'm frustrated about it? How can Christ be exalted in how I talk to my kids right now? How can Christ be exalted in my job when my boss is a jerk and everybody around me is speaking crassly and I'm the only Christian? How can Christ be exalted right now in how to relate to how can Christ be exalted in how I drive? How can Christ be exalted in how I interact with my neighbors? How can Christ be exalted at this moment? And how can I be ignored? Think about it. 
think about how different our actions would be. I've known a lot of people throughout the years who were miserable. And they were miserable because their first thoughts always themselves. For some people, it's overt and unashamed. Their pride is so obvious and their arrogance just takes over everything and everybody around them is miserable because they just are arrogant. That, that's few, but I've had a few. But for most people, pride is very subtle to the point that the person may not even know that's how they're thinking because they believe everybody's being so thoughtless to them and they can't understand why, why people aren't getting to their needs and they're feeling sorry for themselves because no one's paying enough attention or caring enough to satisfy them. Or they're feeling offended because nobody's recognized how smart they are and how talented they are and how deserving of credit they are and, and, they, and they want more attention and, and insert whatever adjective you want to insert. See, pride creeps in so subtly and that insidious thinking, the devil manipulates it and he uses it because he wants our attention always to be on us. And we can justify it, maybe some of it is justified, but it's the reason for our discontentment. That's why in Philippians, Paul says, look at Christ's example. Why Paul says, the things that I gain and have accomplished, they're absolute rubbish, they're trash. And I want to tell you, think on what is pure and holy and righteous, in other words, what's unselfish. And that will give you peace that passes all understanding. Don't be anxious about everything. Just give everything to God in prayer with thanksgiving. And you know what that'll do? It'll teach you to be content. And you'll say, I can do all things through Christ's strength. Everything is deflection away from self and toward Christ. I can't find one verse, not one, where John the Baptist is thinking about himself. Everything is Christ, Christ. I want Jesus to be glorified. Disciples, don't worry about it. Our crowds are down. It's fine. It's all about Christ. Let's just draw attention to Christ. That is why Jesus says, this is the greatest man born of a woman. Not because of his calling and not because of his ministry, but because of his heart and his attitude for the Lord. And you know what? That's the example you and I are following. That's what we're to follow. And I don't know about you, but I need the Lord's help to live that way. To my wife, to my kids, to my family, to my friends, to you, my church family. I need Christ to help me think and act that way. I also need him to help me think and act that way to people that hate God, to people that curse God, to people that are lost and need truth. That Christ might be magnified and I might be diminished. How much more effectively can we communicate the love and mercy of God if that's our mindset. You know, we need to ask the Spirit to change our hearts and change our minds. And then we need to have the courage to do it. Let's close our eyes.